Thank you, Will. It's a joy to be with you all this morning. So I personally uh, have been praying for you uh, before you all were a church. Um, I remember conversations with Justin when he was still in seminary about planting a church in Loudoun County or Fairfax County. I remember having uh, coffee and long phone conversations with him and praying with him and, uh, and praying uh, over the past years as you all have uh, come to be with the Lord uh, has called you to be. So uh, it's a lot of joy for me to finally meet you face to face. Our church, Sterling Park Baptist Church, greets you. We pray for you all, uh, not infrequently, as we uh, um, are excited that the Lord Jesus Christ is being exalted and his gospel is being spread in Fairfax. So uh, let me start with a question this morning as we consider the passage from uh, the Psalms that was just read for us. Uh, and that is, do you ever feel guilty? Do you ever feel guilty? Maybe, maybe even Father's Day is connected to a lot of guilt uh, in your mind, feelings of guilt. Maybe you're a father, but honestly, you don't feel like you're doing as good a job as you probably should be doing, right? So I have, I have five kids from age six to 16, and I pretty much never go to bed at night thinking, I nailed it today, right? Like, <laughs> I, they are so lucky to have me as a father, right? Maybe you even have a kind of tense relationship with your father, right? And you feel guilty that you're not closer. Maybe even it's not your fault, but you still feel guilty. Uh, I just realized last night at about 11.30, I uh, got home from one of my daughter's softball tournaments and realized, I didn't send my dad a card, right? So I've got to make a phone call as soon as we're done here, right? Hopefully get out from under some of those guilty feelings, not being quite the son I probably should be. But whether it's connected to Father's Day or not, I, I wonder if you feel guilty, that's not exactly the same question as asking whether you've ever done anything wrong, right? I don't have doubt that all of us who are of a certain age have done things that we regret and that we, looking back, we realize they were wrong. But in my experience, people deal with those feelings that kind of arise out of our failures, our missteps. People handle those feelings differently. So some people, like my wife, feel everything very acutely. So my wife has a, a sensitive conscience, she feels guilty about everything, right? Things she may have done, things she hasn't done, things she could do better, right? Sometimes it makes no sense to me. She, she homeschools our five kids. I, I don't think in the last 16 years I've ever seen her without one of our kids present, right? But she'll go to bed at night and be like, I just don't feel like I'm spending enough time with the kids. I'm like, what? What on earth? Like, how could you possibly spend more time with the kids, right? But for some reason, she just feels guilty. She feels like she's not measuring up. I, on the other hand, I grew up in a proper Scotch-Irish home, which means that there is one inviolable rule, and that is you never acknowledge your feelings, right? I remember literally one of my uncles telling me when I was a kid, there's a bottle inside of all of us, and the bottle has a cork on it. And the bottle's where we put our feelings, and so when you have a feeling, you just pull the cork up and you stuff the feeling in and you push the cork down before anything blows up. And, you know, every once in a while at family functions, all the corks come flying out at once, right? But, right, the way we show love, my wife realized this after about maybe 19 years of marriage. She's like, the way you show love is by just not mentioning when you're upset at someone or whether someone's done something wrong. So my wife and I talk at the end of the day and she'll be feeling guilty about something that I think she did perfectly well and, and she'll be going on and I'm more like, you know, I think I might have run somebody over with my car today. Yeah, let's go to bed, right? So she's like, if you weren't a Christian, you'd be a serial killer, right? You have no capacity for remorse, right? But 
There are times when even somebody with sort of my constitution and my wiring, there are times when it hits me. Right? Usually it's when I'm alone. I'll be driving alone, along in the shower, lying in bed, and suddenly the memory of something will just come back to me. Something I'm ashamed of. Something I did to hurt other people. Something that didn't measure up to my own standards, didn't, didn't measure up to the way that I present myself to the world, and I'll feel it in a way that I can't deny. I can't get it in the bottle fast enough. The pit of my stomach feels like nausea, guilt, shame, regret, maybe sometimes even a little fear of being exposed to other people. And so how about you? How do you deal with all the ways, both big and small, all the ways that you don't measure up? Do you just try not to think about it? Have you convinced yourself that actually you do measure up, that you really have nothing to feel guilty about? Are you paralyzed by feelings of remorse and regret? Have you found something that can take those feelings away, even if only for a little while? Alcohol drugs, food, pornography, excessive television consumption. Right? They'll take it away. They'll distract you. They'll take the edge off for a little while. But whatever your experience, this morning we're going to turn to God's Word. We're going to see a prayer. We're going to see a song that a man named David wrote when he was confronted by the guilt of something that he had done. So the psalm we read earlier together, I'd like to just point out three things that we see in this psalm, and hopefully along the way we'll get around to an answer to that question that Edward mentioned a few moments ago. How do we get a clean heart? Right, if our experience of guilt is really that awareness that our hearts are not clean, how do we get a clean heart? And so I'd like to see three things from this passage. First, let's see David's sin. So David is the author of our psalm. I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a second. But let's first, let's see David's sin. And second, we'll see David's change. And then finally, David's hope. So David's sin, David's change, and David's hope. So first, let's look at his sin. So even if you don't know the background here, you can tell just from reading this psalm once through that some dark stuff has gone down by the way David is talking here. Uh, You may remember David, he's the great king of Israel. He lived about 1,000 years before Jesus was born, so we're talking about roughly 3,000 years ago. Uh, and in many ways, he was the greatest of all of the Israelites, the greatest of God's people. He was described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. He was a fierce warrior. He was a courageous leader. He was a faithful worshiper of the true God. But you can tell something has gone very wrong, even in verses 3 and 4. He says, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Even just in the first few verses, you can tell something's happened. He's talking about his transgression in verse 1. In verse 2, he talks about his iniquity. Again, in verse 2, he talks about his sin. Uh, Transgression, verse 3. Sin, again, in verse 3. Verse 4, he talks about his evil that he's done. Verse 5, he talks again about iniquity and sin. So what's going on here? What has David done that he's so worked up about, that he keeps going on and on about his sin? 
Well, if you look at the very beginning of the chapter, really even before verse 1, what's called the, the superscript, the little notes that we see uh, so often in the Psalms that give instructions to the, the choir master. So these were songs that were written to be used by the Israelites in their worship. And so sometimes there's, there's musical instruction that, that I don't understand at all, but uh, presumably they did in those days. And sometimes you even get an introduction to the context for the psalm. And here it says that this is a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So this psalm was written in response to Nathan the prophet coming to David after he had an affair with a woman named Bathsheba. Now, let me explain that, so if that story is not familiar to you. So in the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, you have this story about how David becomes king. So it's a long story, but basically it goes like this. The people of Israel had wanted a king, and so God gave them one, a man named Saul. And Saul was a good king for a while, but he sort of goes off the rails, and so God ultimately replaces him with a man named David. Uh, And so there's sort of all sorts of chaos in that transition. Over the course of about 15 years, Saul keeps trying to kill David, but finally David gets on the throne of Israel. And it's it's sort of a high watermark. You know, finally this this great king is ruling over God's people on God's behalf. He's empowered by God's spirit. He's ruling with justice. Everything seems like it's just the way it's supposed to be. But then it's like the record skips for a second. And the narrative hits a snag. Something shocking happens. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read that one time, David, when the kings were supposed to be out at war, was hanging out back in Jerusalem, hanging out on the roof of his palace. And he is looking out over the city, and he sees this beautiful woman named Bathsheba taking a bath on the roof of her house. And so this is the the sort of 11th century B.C. version of clicking on an inappropriate link, right? And coming to a porn site. And you have this decision. David's got to decide. He's seen something he shouldn't have seen. What's he going to do about it now? And so everything goes crazy from this point. David, long story short, he abuses his power. He takes this woman, gets her pregnant. And then in an effort to cover up what he had done, he has her husband murdered. Her husband, a man named Uriah, one of his soldiers. He has him murdered in order to cover up his sin. That's shocking stuff. I mean, this is not some sort of you know, Netflix television miniseries thing. This actually happened. This is, this is a, a big chunk of the Old Testament is committed to telling the story of David. David is supposed to be the guy. Right? He's, he's in the Bible Hall of Fame. Right? He's, he's one of the good guys. But here he is. Abusing his power, committing adultery, murdering a man to cover up his guilt, right? You'd fire your pastor in a heartbeat, and rightly so, if he did one of those things. But here is the king over God's people, and he's an adulterer. He is a murderer. And so here, David, as he reflects on what he's done, look at how he describes his sin. Notice, notice three things that this psalm teaches us about sin as David reflects on what he's done. First, it teaches us that our sin is fundamentally against God. You see that again there in verse 4. It says, against you, speaking to God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So David, as he's reflecting on his sin, declares, God, I have sinned against you and you alone. Now, if I'm Bathsheba or Uriah, I want to politely raise my hand at this point and be like, um, you know, excuse me, 
you did use your position of authority to coerce someone into sex. You did impregnate someone's wife and then have him murdered. So in some small way, I think you've sinned against me as well, right? I don't know about you, but if my murderer were writing a song about the people he sinned against, I would want to be included in that, right? It only seems right that I should be on the list somewhere. But here, David is saying that he sinned against the Lord and the Lord only. I don't think he means to exclude the fact that he sinned against other people, right? Obviously he had. But the point is that at its heart, most basically, sin in its length and breadth is rebellion against God himself. David realizes this is not a contained spill. His, his problem is not merely with Bathsheba, not merely with Uriah. He realizes that his problem is a vertical problem. He realizes he has sinned against his creator. He is ultimately guilty of defying the king of the universe. Because David's body, David's life, David's decisions, his authority, they did not belong to him. As the king of Israel, he had a charge from God to lead and protect God's people. Not to prey on them like a wolf. As a human being made in God's image, he was meant to live within the bounds of God's law when it comes to sexuality. Bathsheba, Uriah, they were human beings made in God's image as well. And so when David messes with them, when he sins against them, he sins against their Creator as well. David realizes he's broken God's law. He has a vertical problem. His sin is against the Lord. So I wonder what you make of that truth. If you're here this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I wonder what you make of that idea. That when you do something wrong, your fundamental problem is not with other people, not with the people you hurt, but with God himself. Do you realize that God takes your sin personally? So those unkind words that you may speak, those lustful glances that you send out at unwitting people, the lies that you've told, the the money you've cheated from your employer. Do you realize that your most primary offense is not against that person? Sure, if you're caught, you're going to have to fix that problem. There's restitution to be made. You may suffer consequences like the loss of your reputation or your marriage or your job. But here's the thing. You can commit adultery. You can steal. You can lie. You can gossip. You can cheat. Look at porn. You can get drunk. And it's possible to do all those things and never get caught. You may never have to pay a price to anyone else. You may get away with it. Right? David did. He covered his tracks so thoroughly, even though it involved murdering someone, that he thought that he was in the clear. But David's one problem and your one problem is that there is one offended party in every sin who sees everything and knows everything and holds everyone accountable for what they've done. So the book of Hebrews tells us about God that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom they must give an account. Now my guess, again, I I may not know you personally, but I'm going to go ahead and hazard a guess that you don't hear that and think, yes. Finally, somebody knows everything I've ever done. There's going to be somebody who knows how great I am, who will appreciate me for my my wonderful personality and flawless behavior. 
Now, my guess is that you're like me, and you hear that, and you get a knot in your stomach. And so you're going to need to do something about your sin. You're going to need to do something about that vertical problem that your sin has created. If you're a Christian, this reality that when you sin, you sin against God, if you're a Christian, that should be a strong incentive for you to resist temptation and say no to sin. Let me give you one example of how this works. There was a man named Joseph, hundreds of years before David. He was an Israelite slave. He had risen to be an overseer of a house of an important Egyptian man named Potiphar. And the Bible tells us that Joseph was a good-looking fellow. So we don't get that report on people's appearances all through the Bible, but he must have been a good-looking guy because the Bible takes time to tell us. And so Potiphar's wife, his boss's wife, basically comes one day and tries to seduce him. And so Joseph kind of has the opportunity to do the same thing David did, except you know, in this case, temptation came looking for him. But we read in Genesis 39, Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness? Listen. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And you see what he says? He says, look, my master, he hasn't hurt me, wronged me at all. He doesn't say, how then could I sin against him? No, he says, how could I sin against God? He acknowledges that to commit this sin would be to commit an offense against not just his employer, but more importantly, against his God. He says, how could I dare to willingly and knowingly sin against my God, against the one who is thrice holy, as we sang about earlier. Holy, holy, holy. How could I sin against a God who's cared for me and watched over me and protected me? So Christian, when you're tempted to sin, remember who it is that you're sinning against. That's the first thing we see about our sin in this passage. The second thing we see is that sin brings consequences. Right? That's all over the place in this psalm. This is the cry of a man who is experiencing the consequences of his sin. He is crushed by his guilt. You see that there in verse 14. Deliver me, he says, from blood guiltiness. He was a murderer. That must have haunted David's conscience. All through this psalm, he speaks about sin like it's a stain. Something heavy on him. Verse 7, he begs God to cleanse him from this stain of sin, to purge him of his impurity. In verses 1 and 2, he uses words like blot out, wash, cleanse. He understands that his guilt is staining his character and his life. On top of that guilt, there was the reality of God's discipline in his life. In verse 8, he cries out for the bones that the Lord has broken to be restored. That's a powerful image. We don't know if it's literal or sort of... uh, uh, a metaphor, right, for God's discipline in his life. We know from Psalm 32, another time that David was crying out uh, about his sin, that he, he uses the words there like God's arrows were sinking into his flesh, that God's hand was pressing him down. Right, in his love, God makes sin bitter in the mouths of his children. Right, he won't allow us to enjoy our sin. He sends consequences so we will learn to hate it. And the consequences for David were awful. This is what the Lord said to David through the prophet Nathan in light of his sin. 
This is 2 Samuel chapter 12. It says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. In fact, that's exactly what happened. The child conceived through adultery did in fact die in the coming years. David's family was racked by violence and treachery. Right, the consequences of David's sin were terrible. And friends, we know this to be true in our own life as well, right? If you've lived for any amount of time, you can say along with David that the consequences of sin are bitter. Right, some of us are spending our lives dealing with the consequences of things that we've done in the past. Or maybe we're living in the fallout of the consequences of other people's sin. Well, the, consequence, the third consequence of sin that we see, the third thing that we see about sin here is that sin results in a loss of closeness to God. That sense of communion and fellowship that David once had with God where he was able to come before Him with a clear conscience and worship Him with joy is gone. You see there in verse 11, he calls out, he says, cast me not away from Your presence. Take not Your Holy Spirit from me. David is worried. He, he doesn't feel that sense of God's closeness and presence anymore. There in verse 12, he confesses he's lost the joy that he normally has in having that relationship with God. So David has hope that he will be forgiven for his sin. We'll get to that in a minute. But it doesn't mean that everything was okay between him and God. Sin left unaddressed disrupts our sense of God's presence and His closeness. If you're a follower of Christ, maybe you've felt that before in your own life. If you wander away, if you begin to reject God by your actions, if you embrace things in your life that you know He hates, it's harder to have close fellowship with Him. You'll be more reluctant to open His Word, more reluctant to gather together week in and week out with His people, more reluctant to sing His praises. Right? It's hard to be here it's hard to be hearing God's Word when you're embracing sin in your life. And again, maybe you're feeling something of that today. Friend, that distance, that sense of disconnection from your Creator is meant to create a longing in you. Right? It's like the pain that drives you to take the medicine that you need to get healing. Right? God will, in His love, withdraw His comfort from you so that your conscience will hound you so that you will pursue Him and turn from your sin. David knows that his sin is an offense against God. He knows that his sin has consequences. He knows that David, David knows that he can't fix his sin problem. That's the last thing for us to see. Right? Sin is an offense against God. Sin has consequences. The third thing for us to see about David's sin is that he can't fix it. Right? Look there in verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother did conceive me. Right? He's not saying anything negative about his mother. There's something wrong with the way that he was born. What he's saying is that this terrible sin in his life is not an isolated event. This was not an anomaly. He says, this isn't that far out of my character. He says, this is just a warped expression of my soul. Do you notice in this psalm, David doesn't ask God 
to give him sexual self-control. Right? That's not, not a bad thing to ask for, but that's not what David sees as his primary need. He doesn't say, Lord, deliver me from my lust so that I won't do this again. No, he knows that that lust that he acted on is simply a symptom of a sinful heart. And so what he asks for is a clean heart. David knew that he had sinned because he was a sinner. It wasn't a new development. It was from his birth. It is the way it's always been. David committed adultery because he was an adulterer. That was just the most terrible expression that that sin in his life had, had given to that time in his life. Right? Do you think this was the first time David went up on his roof looking for girls? My guess is no. Do you think this is the first time that David committed sexual sin? My guess is that it wasn't. Right? David had Uriah killed because in his heart he was a murderer. He lied to cover up his sin because in his heart he was a liar. And so David comes to Psalm 51 with an acute sense that he can't solve his problem. Right? He realizes, I am the problem here, not the solution. It's his sinfulness, his actions that have cost him dearly. And so he pleads, pleads with God for help. He says, have mercy on me, O Lord. Cleanse me, restore me. Don't cast me away from your presence. And friends, I think this is really important for us to see. Because the world out there tells us that the way you deal with your guilty feelings is to forgive yourself. But you know you can't do that, right? I mean, you can definitely stop beating yourself up over past mistakes. I get that. That's true. At times that may very well even be wise. But you know that you can't forgive yourself, right? Or let's say you committed some crime and you're arrested you're taken to trial, you're found guilty, you're sentenced. I'm thinking, I'm not a lawyer, I'm thinking that it's going to be an unhelpful strategy for you to say, you know what, judge? It's okay. I just want you to know I forgive myself. I realize that what I, what I need to do is learn to accept me for how I am. But I think the judge would suggest that you don't actually understand how things work. Guilty people can't forgive themselves. You can't commute your own sentence. And so here, David comes to God as a sinner. He doesn't bring anything to God except his guilt and his desire for mercy. And so, friend, have you come to the point where you're able to say, along with David, I'm a sinner through and through? Have you come to the point where you can acknowledge that your sin isn't the exception? The things that you do wrong are not the exception, but the rule that they are ultimately an expression of who you are. I think that's how, how Christianity kind of stands out from the way the world around us thinks, the way even other religions think. Right? Usually what you hear is that you have problems, you've done things that are wrong, and many times the, the reason are things outside of you. So it's the way you were brought up, the circumstances you're placed in, sometimes even things you can't control like your biology, your genetics, your DNA, and there's truth to all of that, right? But, but if that's the problem, then the solution comes from inside me. Right? I, need to, I need to learn to forgive myself. I need to, to heal. I need to be stronger. Right? But the Bible comes and actually flips that and says, yes, certainly things outside of us do create problems, but the, our fundamental problem is our own heart. 
that we have a sinful heart. And so we can't be the solution to our problem. We need a solution from outside of us. So that brings us to our second point. That's David's sin. Let's look at David's change. Again, if you go back to 2 Samuel 11, you have this picture of what's going on in David's heart. He sees this woman he shouldn't be looking at. He has an opportunity to pull back, put, put, put his eyes back where they belong, but he doesn't. He takes his sin to the next level, right? And, and he, he has uh, the husband of this woman murdered, right? This is pretty extreme. And so David's feeling pretty, pretty uh, exposed at this point, right? He's, he's trying to cover up everything that he's done. And so the picture of David in 2 Samuel 11 is this conniving liar, Right, this man who is willing to take what he wants and even willing to have a man murdered to cover up his sin. So how do we get from there, from 2 Samuel 11 to Psalm 51? How do we get to verse 3 of Psalm 51 where David goes from this man insane in his sin to a man who says, my sin is always before me. I have sinned against you and you alone, O Lord. How do we get there from 2 Samuel 11 to Psalm 51? Well, the Bible tells us the story. So if you have your Bible, if you want to turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, I'm going to read this story to you. David is cruising along. His sin has not been exposed. He seems completely content at this point just to move on with his life. But in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we read starting in verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan, that's a prophet. The Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd or prepare it for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, ah, you can see, just hear the self-righteousness in his voice, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And if you skip down to verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So what changed for David? What took him from being a man committed to covering his tracks? A self-righteous man at that. Did you notice his outrage when Nathan tells him this story? What takes him from that to being a man deeply wounded by his sin? Well, simply put, it was the exposing Word of God. God's Word came to him through the prophet Nathan and laid him open. He was suddenly confronted with with his sin, confronted that he, in fact, had not hidden his ways 
from the One who sees everything. He was reminded of the truth that God saw what He did. God took it personally. And that in fact, He had not gotten away with it. Suddenly, David was like the prodigal son in the pigsty in Jesus' story, if you're familiar with that. The lights come on. He comes to his senses. He sees clearly those things that he's been so heavily invested in denying and suppressing. He goes from, how do I get away with this? To now saying, how could I have done this to my God? And now he sees the truth that what God delights in is a heart set on Him. In Psalm 51, verse 6, he sees that God wants truth in the inward being. In verse 10, he sees that God can give him a clean heart and a right spirit. He sees that God is not pleased there in verse 16 with burnt offerings and sacrifices. That stuff is doable. That sort of external performance of religion, you can do that with a completely corrupt, conniving, sinful heart. No, God wants a broken, a contrite, a remorseful heart in His people. Friends, this is important for us. So I've been pastoring our church for about 13 years and I am convinced that most Christians don't know what to do when they fall into sin. We tend to call our plays from David's playbook in 2 Samuel 11. Maybe we don't have the opportunity to have people murdered to cover up our sin, but we sure do try to cover our tracks. We lie. We do anything to avoid dealing with what we've done. We might even ramp up our religious performance in order to look a little bit better to everyone else around us. We might become a little more sharp in our condemnation of other people's sins. Right? But you can maintain good standing in other people's eyes. But friends, that won't touch our guilt. That doesn't give us a clean heart. And because we're calling our plays from David's playbook in 2 Samuel 11, we begin to live a lot like David was living then. A sense of God's displeasure with our sin and hypocrisy. A crippling fear of being exposed. A loss of joy in God's salvation. Going through the motions when we gather with God's people rather than really being engaged at the level of our hearts. Maybe even acknowledging our sin, right? which sometimes you can do without even doing something about it, right? but never really putting it away. But friends, Psalm 51 was written so that we won't go down that path. Psalms like this one were given to us by God so that we might have the vocabulary that we need, so that we might have the confidence that we lack to go to God in repentance when we sin. So avoid sin like the plague. Right? Wisdom is not learning from your mistakes, it's learning from the mistakes of others. Right? Learn from David's mistake. Don't do what he did. But if you do sin, come to your senses quickly. Go to God. Confess like David did that your sin is against Him and Him only. Acknowledge that you have not been pure in heart. Ask God for mercy and restoration. Beg Him to make your heart clean. And that brings us, I think, naturally to our final point, which is David's hope. You see, David had no right to demand that God do anything for him. If we're being honest, God set Saul the other king, the previous king, he set Saul aside for honestly doing less. There in verse 4, David admits that God would be perfectly right, perfectly just, if he judged him in his sin. 
But David has hope. He has hope that God will be merciful to him. See that there in verse 1? First words of the psalm, have mercy on me, O God. Right, why would God be merciful to David? Right, I mean, David's the good guy. We want God to be merciful, perhaps, but, but my guess is that if you're Uriah's mother, you wouldn't think David was a great candidate for mercy. Right, just think about how we think about perpetrators of sexual violence in the Me Too era, right? So, long live the Me Too era. May, may many sexual predators be torn down from their positions, right? I think that's great. So, Matt Lauer, Harvey Weinstein, all these guys, that's a good thing that they're being torn down, right? But think about it. David, probably worse than all of them, right? We don't want Charlie Rose to have mercy, right? We want him to get justice, right? We want him to be penalized for the way he preyed on other people. Why would we want David to have mercy? How could a just God have mercy on David? How is that fair to Bathsheba? How is that fair to Uriah? Verse 1, please have mercy on me, O God. And notice, notice why David thinks God should be merciful to him. Be merciful according to all the ways I've served you. According to all the things I've done for you. Be merciful to me because I grew up in a Christian home. Because I'm basically a good person. No. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love. Have mercy on me, God, not because of anything in me. If you look at me, all you're going to see is, a, is a, a dead man and a sinned against woman. Don't look at me, God. Have mercy on me because of who you are. Because you are committed to me in steadfast love. Because you're passionately committed to my well-being, not because of me, but despite me. You see, David remembered who God was and who God had declared him to be. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, God declared himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Right, that's David's hope that the Lord will be merciful according to His own steadfast love. And in fact, friends, we know far more about how this shakes out than David ever did. David, a terrible sinner, could come to God only because he knew that God was merciful, but he didn't know how that was going to work. But for those of us living 3,000 years later, standing on this side of the, the work and life and death of Jesus Christ, we know much more than David did. How can David be merciful to a sinner, to a, to a murderer like David? How could he pass over David's sin? How could he give David a clean heart that he didn't deserve? How does David dare have hope? Well, a thousand years after David wrote this psalm, God sent His Son to save us. To provide for us. To give us a clean heart. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God. The Son of God, born in human flesh, born into the line of David. And Jesus had no sin to repent of. Jesus never prayed on the people that He was supposed to lead and take care of. He never incurred any guilt of His own. 
He never used his position of authority to take for himself, but instead he said, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus stood in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified. Jesus hung on the cross and he pleaded with God the Father for mercy. But he found none. The prayer that God the Father answered for David, he did not answer for his own son. On the cross, Jesus endured the justice. He endured the righteous and holy anger of God against the sin of all of his people, including David. Jesus on the cross endured the punishment that David deserved for his sin. He took the penalty for all the sins of anyone who would ever trust in him, including my sin. And if you trust in him, including your sin as well. Jesus took that wrath. He took that punishment. He died on the cross and He rose from the dead in victory and now He lives. And He offers new life to anyone who will cry out like David did, not on the basis of their goodness, but on the basis of God's love and mercy. If you will cry out to God, you will receive mercy, forgiveness, cleansing. Friend, you cannot make your heart clean. It's just like washing your hands with mud. But Jesus can. He takes away your guilt. He pays the penalty. He takes your shame. And He gives you His righteousness, His clean heart as a free gift. Friends, it's on this basis that David can write Psalm 51. He didn't know exactly how God would accomplish his salvation. He didn't know that Jesus was coming in a thousand years, but he knew that God had promised to be merciful to his sin-sick people. So friend, can you see what sinners have in Jesus? Sinners like you and me are naturally far from God. But Psalm 51 shows us how we can draw near to Him. Right, it begins in verse 3 with a, a confession of our unworthiness, just as we sang earlier. Right? All the fitness He requires is that you feel your need of Him. That you acknowledge that you don't have what it takes to be right with God. That you need Him. That's what David calls a broken spirit and a contrite heart. It goes through verse 1. A strong confidence in the free, loving mercy of God that He won't despise us in our sin. And so friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, friend, won't you come to Him today? Don't be hardened in your sin. Don't, don't call plays from David's playbook. Don't hide from your guilt. Be humble. Acknowledge your sin to God. Seek Him in mercy. And Christian, do you see what your God is like? If He is like this, if He is so loving, so merciful, then when you're caught in sin, why wouldn't you go to Him? Christian, what do you need to confess to God this morning? You know that when you go to God through Christ, He is merciful. He restores. He cleanses us. David, yes, he dealt with the consequences of his sin throughout the rest of his life, but he was a changed man. He was a faithful man. He had a deep and abiding confidence in the Lord's mercy toward him. So Christian, could you walk out of here 
with that renewed joy that David talks about in verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. There in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Could that be your experience this morning as you confess your sin to the Lord? Could you be renewed in your delight and your praise to God for His righteousness? There in verses 14 and 15, He says, My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Christian, could you be renewed as you come to God in repentance? Restored, given the ability to sing God's praises again? Christian, could you walk out of here this morning aware that you've been made completely clean, purged, washed whiter than snow by the blood of Christ as David talks about there in verse 7 where he pleads, purge me and I shall be clean. Wash me. I'll be whiter than snow. Could God use you? Could God even use your experience of sin and forgiveness to teach others about His ways? Right there in verse 13, David praise that. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will restore to you. Friend, God can even use your sin to bless others if you'll come to Him in repentance. Friends, all of those things are marvelous free gifts of God's mercy when His people turn and come to Him in their sin. Doesn't that sound better? Doesn't that sound better than whatever small pleasures your sin is giving you? Doesn't that sound better than whatever small benefit you're getting from hiding your sin this morning? Sojourn, this is important for you as a church. You see that there in verses 18 and 19. We don't have time to go through it all, but you see David's focus turns from his own personal spiritual experience to the experience of God's people as a whole. He calls it Zion there. He says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Right? This isn't just a psalm for individual Christians to pray or sing. This is a song of God's people together. Right? We don't gather anymore to offer sacrifices. Jesus offered the final sacrifice for us. But when we come to worship God together, we do so on the same basis that they did back then. And that is the free mercy of God to penitent sinners. We come knowing that we're not coming on the basis of our goodness, but on God's declared intention that He won't despise a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And so, Sojourn, if you want to be a church that worships God passionately, if you want to be a church that takes the good news of Jesus Christ to the people around you, if you want to be a church where sinners are restored to God, it's not going to be because you get your act together. It's not because you guys finally get everything right. It won't be because you finally hit on the right strategy and have the perfect leadership. But it will be because you're a broken-spirited people. Right? The fuel for our worship, the fuel for our mission and joy and obedience is a contrite heart that is 100% dependent on the mercy of God. And so friend, whatever it is you're experiencing this morning, don't waste your guilt. Take it to God. Experience His cleansing. Receive that clean heart from Him through Christ and let it be transformed in your life into fuel for delight and worship. And so let's respond to God's Word together as God's people. And maybe the Holy Spirit is convicting you through His Word the way He did with David. Maybe you've been holding on to sin. Whatever it is, let's take a moment as we approach the Lord's table. Let's humble our hearts. Let's pray to the Lord, cry out to Him for mercy, and then go to the Lord's table together. Let's, let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that all of our ways are laid bare before your gaze, that you are the one to whom we have to give an account, and that all of our sin is fundamentally against you. And Lord, we would despair and we would hide if it were not for the glorious truth that you are merciful to contrite people and that in your love you sent your Son to take our penalty and to take away our sins so that we could be cleansed, purged, whiter than snow. And so Lord, we come before you. We confess our sin. We're sorry for the things that we've done. We pray that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who is struggling with hidden sin, that you would give them strength by your Holy Spirit to confess, to seek you in repentance. As we come to your table, we rejoice that you've made a provision for us in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We do come now to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's a great way to apply the, the sermon, the passage of Scripture that we've just considered. Uh, one of the ways that we acknowledge our need for mercy is by taking the Lord's Supper. So at, in the, the table, the Lord Jesus is inviting you to come and fellowship with Him on the basis of His body broken for you, His blood shed for your cleansing. And so when you come, there's nothing magical about the bread or the juice. My guess is they were purchased at a grocery store. There's nothing sort of crazy and, and magical happening here. And what's important is that the Lord Jesus Christ has promised to meet with his people when they come by faith. And so you come with faith in the promises of Jesus Christ, that all who come to him will never be cast out, that all who come to him receive cleansing for their sins. So brothers and sisters, come, take the, the cup, take the bread, this is a meal for people who have experienced that forgiveness that Jesus purchased on the cross. So if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Christ. Let me just say on behalf of, this isn't my church, but I'm welcoming you on behalf of Sojourn. I'm, we're delighted that you're here this morning. We'd ask that you not participate in this part of the service in terms of going to the back or coming forward and taking the elements because really it's a celebration of something that's not yet true of you. Instead, we'd encourage you to just, you can sit quietly. No one's going to make a big deal out of that. And just think about what you've heard. Think about your own need for cleansing, for your sins. Think about why it is that Jesus had to shed his blood, had to hang on the cross for our forgiveness. I encourage you to put your trust in him so that you can celebrate the Lord's Supper at some other time. But God's people come, take the supper. <laughs>